A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Question of the week after the autumn statement. Are the Tories falling apart? Four. There are a lot of senior Tories saying, maybe we do need some time out of office. Three. So many people just feel really cheated by the system. This idea that hard work pays off and it actually doesn't. It pays landlords. Two. We should found a party called the Disgusted With All Political Parties Party. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Nice hello there, (laughs) co-pilot. There are some Conservatives who say that a period in opposition would do us good. These are the words of former Cabinet Minister and former Tory party chairman, Liam Fox. As someone who served on the front bench for 13 long years in opposition to Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, wrote Fox in Wednesday's Telegraph, I say your worst day in government is still better than your best day in opposition. There are indeed Tory MPs, even ministers, who privately argue that after 12 years in power, their party would benefit from time out of office. Much of the broader public, too, has concluded the Tories have given up. When Sir Keir Starmer addressed the Confederation of British Industry this week, business bosses seemed more interested in what the Labour leader had to say than when Prime Minister Rishi Sunak spoke to the same audience. The days of cheap labour must end to wean the UK off its immigration dependency, said Starmer, venturing deep into Tory territory. Who cares that he spent years trying to reverse Brexit, which would have reinstated free movement, of course, keeping the UK's borders fully open, with no restrictions at all, to migrants from the EU. Meanwhile, Alison, as the NHS waiting list spiralling shows signs of complete implosion, now we're in for another slew of rail strikes. Hooray! (laughs) It will soon be December. But far from feeling festive as Advent approaches, this country seems shrouded in woe. But then there's the World Cup. But even the beautiful game is mired in woke armband rows and politics. But no matter... All is well because England won their first game against Iran by six goals to two. Surely, co-pilot, it's coming home. (laughs) We need some escapism, don't we? We really need some escapism. It's all hanging on the shoulders of Messrs. Sacker and Bellingham, isn't it? Those young boys, 19 and 21, carrying the hopes of the nation. I have to say, Liam, I did like the suggestion from one listener that we should found a party called the Disgusted with All Political Parties Party. (laughs) Before we get stuck in, can I congratulate you on your scoop of the week? Halligan pouring over the runes of the autumn statement, spotted section 61. Tell listeners what you found. I got a tasty little tip off, I should admit, by somebody who listens to Planet Normal, who shall remain nameless. Ah. But anyway, there was a paragraph in the Office for Budget Responsibilities technical document 
issued alongside the Autumn Statement that said there is a planned 23% increase in fuel duty on petrol and diesel, which would up at current rates the price of a gallon of petrol or diesel by 12 pence net, by 15 pence when grossed up for VAT. The government denies that this is going to happen, but the numbers are what they are. Those revenues have been accounted for by the OBR, and the OBR itself does call it a planned increase in tax, but it didn't make it, of course, into Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement. So once I filleted it out and talked about it on GB News, social media went ballistic and the Treasury went into full damage limitation, reverse ferret mode. But they're not ruling it out. They're not ruling it out for the next budget, the spring statement in 2023. Can't wait for the spring statement. (laughs) We've still got £1.37 left in the kitty, so I'm sure Jeremy will be along to confiscate that soon. Put it in your diary. It's something to look forward to. (laughs) Also in the statement, I saw they'd slipped in that growth would be dependent not on businesses growing or on enterprise or any of that old hat, Halligan. It was going to be 220,000 immigrants a year to come and use the public services, which are in no difficulty whatsoever. It's all joy. So question of the week after the autumn statement, are the Tories falling apart? We've had two MPs this week announce that they're leaving at the next election. Chloe Smith, age 40, so one of the younger ones, and William Rag, also very young and I think chairman of one of the big you know, public affairs select committees. So he was doing very, very well. Both are perhaps going to avoid the apocalypse. We could discuss that. And 50 Tory MPs signed up to an amendment to stop more house building in the leafy shires. More worried about hanging onto their seats, Halligan, than the young people in their constituencies who can't afford anywhere to live. And I did notice just as we are about to start recording that Lisa Nandy for Labour had said that Labour would in fact be voting these planning reforms through, taking more of a pro-consumer approach than the Conservatives. It strikes me, Liam, that there's a lot to talk about here, but that they're scrapping now, aren't they, over the centre ground. There was a statement released after the dreaded autumn document, which was little pictures of Sunak and Hunt, and it was on social media, and it was headlined, Conservatives Plan for the Economy. And the things they put under it, I thought of you, because I thought you'd love this, biggest ever increase to the national living wage, 11 billion extra funding for RNHS and schools, helping every household with their energy bills, protecting the triple lock for pensioners. Now, with my Velma hat on, I know those are not economic policies, are they? They are welfare policies. So from that, it looks like the Tories have given up on business and enterprise and growth in which case they're planning on fighting Labour on its own territory. I agree with lots of that. It is interesting that Labour are going to support the government's levelling up bill, which includes changes to the planning system to try and get more houses built. Really humiliating Sunak because he will then need Labour votes to get that legislation through the House because there will be many Tory rebels, the so-called NIMBYs, not in my backyards, as you say. And... As we look at the autumn statement, and it's been sinking in over the last week or so since Jeremy Hunt stood up in the Commons last Thursday, 
it does seem as if the Conservatives have abandoned pro-growth policies, abandoned any notion of so-called supply-side reform, deregulating, tackling vested interests who want to slow down growth or want to defend uh, the status quo, failing to champion those small and medium-sized enterprises, Alison, upon which the growth of the UK economy and so the majority of our jobs actually depend. And it's not as if there's a scrap over the centre ground. I think the Tories have just completely abandoned it and allowed Labour to move in. Mm. And we were talking earlier, weren't we, about the comparison now between Keir Starmer going to the CBI and getting a pretty warm reception yeah. and lots of interest and Tony Blair back in the day in the mid-1990s. I don't think Keir Starmer is a patch on Tony Blair as a politician. Whatever you think of Blair, his record in government, you know, the guy won three elections in a row. He came into office with a serious set of proposals. New Labour, as they were then called, had that pledge card, the five things they really wanted to do in office, which were issues that the centre ground of British politics, Middle England, as we say in the trade, could rally round. And after years of Conservative government, a government that seemed very, very tired in the early and mid-1990s. New Labour stormed to that massive 179-seat majority, very much with an agenda that was, this is what we want to do in government, Mm. not just being the default. I think Keir Starmer is much more likely to just let power come to him, be very, very cautious, not say anything bold and radical, not wanting to frighten the horses. He wants the Tories to fail so he can then take office by default rather than actually winning office. And I think there's a sense now, and it was captured in Liam Fox's article in The Telegraph, and I do think that was an important article. He's not in the cabinet, but he remains a significant backbencher, a significant figure in the party across the country. He has picked up on what you and I have picked up on over recent weeks and months even, that there are a lot of senior Tories saying, you know, maybe we do need some time out of office. There are other bits of my life I want to get on with. Some MPs obviously are leaving. You referred to that at the top. Chloe Smith, crikey, she was in the cabinet at a very young age. She has a huge political future ahead of her if she wants, but she's decided to leave. And there is increasing talk in Westminster that the most important people to a lot of Tory MPs at the moment, the people they have on speed dial, aren't their constituents or their fellow cabinet ministers and other members of their party. They're headhunters because a lot of them are looking for new jobs, jobs outside of Parliament, Mm. standing down, not going through the, the misery of fighting an election when you seem destined to lose. They've been such a disappointment, Liam. Look, I voted, well, I voted for them with a full heart, particularly in December 2019. This Conservative administration never distinguished by its reforming zeal, let's put it that way, but it's just sputtered to a halt, hasn't it? And it looks to me like they seem to be just surviving day to day, trying to avoid any confrontation. You mentioned at the top, I wrote this week about the absolutely parlous state of the NHS. I'm not sure the government's quite got to grips with how truly terrible it is. We had Dr. Claire on last week explaining that as a GP, she can't now directly refer any patients to a hospital consultant. It has to go through some sort of (laughs) 
speak your weight machine. No, you can't have an appointment. Look after your cardiac arrest patient in the constituency. It's absolutely dreadful. But in that autumn statement, there's Jeremy Hunt casually bunging the completely broken, corrupt, useless NHS, another six billion over the next two years with no conditions attached. And you'll notice, Liam, that he actually said, which really was gobsmacking. He actually said that Amanda Pritchard, who's the chief executive of NHS England, had deemed it sufficient. Jeremy was giving her six billion of taxpayers' money, which Amanda had deemed sufficient to be getting on with, but we'll be asking for a bit more later. I think the NHS runs the country pretty much, and I think it runs it on a combination of gaslighting and emotional blackmail. It's weird, isn't it? We're not here to feel sorry for cabinet ministers, are we? But it's the health secretary who's just come in as health secretary. He has to get up early on a Sunday morning and and run the gauntlet of the TV studios on 150 grand a year or whatever it is. Meanwhile, the NHS chief exec, she's earning a quarter of a million quid a year. She gets to hide behind (laughs) her duvet on a Sunday morning watching the cabinet minister, the health secretary, squirm in the cauldron of public gaze it's like it's a sort of technocracy the people who are in charge aren't the people who are actually elected and publicly accountable and I take my life in my hands when I say the next thing but I know you feel this too Alison is this really the time when waiting lists are at least seven million and arguably much higher yeah and anybody who wants to know why we think that should listen to that really astonishing interview you did last week a return to planet normal of gp claire of course a pseudonym because she's worried about reprisals within the nhs the bottlenecks in the system the deliberate ways that are used to keep the waiting lists low or lower or less astonishingly high, is this really the time when people are tearing their hair out trying to get GP appointments where so many GPs, not all by any means, many of them do a fantastic job, not just Claire, but thousands of others, but quite a lot of GPs are still not doing face-to-face stuff to any degree that they were before COVID. Is this really the time to start championing the fact that you are taking special measures for women in the NHS workforce <laughs> who suffer from menopause. I mean, oh, God. really? Of course, menopause is a hugely important issue. We need to talk about more. But the timing of that statement is just so otherworldly. It disdains people whose loved ones are in life-threatening positions who can't get hospital treatment, who can't even get in front of a GP. Yes, this was Amanda Pritchard writing, in fact, in the Daily Telegraph yesterday, talking about female health workers going through menopause who are, quote, silently suffering and should not be expected to grin and bear it. Can we think of anybody else, Liam, randomly, who might be silently suffering and is expected to grin and bear it? Could those be the seven million people that the NHS partly mainly because of shutting down non-COVID services during lockdown, is failing to give any health care to. I thought it was 
absolutely in fact i'm going to i'm going to have a rant i'm going to write a column for friday and i'm going to say what planet is this amanda pritchard on certainly she's not on planet normal you know i've wrote a novel a first novel containing a heroine going through menopause and obviously i'm kind of very concerned about that and stopping it being a taboo i hope i've played my part a small part in that but this was absolutely ridiculous I've got a theory, co-pilot. See what you think. So there's been a huge amount of adverse publicity for the NHS this week alone. The Times had headlines about waiting lists for operations and ambulances will last for years. Okay, so there was that. And then the Telegraph had a very strong front page lead, which was on the drastically rising number of Cancer deaths. Now, we on Planet Normal, with no pleasure at all, having spoken to Professors Pat Price and Professor Carol Sikora, who had been predicting, hadn't they, for years, if not months. As had Macmillan. Macmillan, No lesser source than the Macmillan Cancer Trust. Absolutely. So they knew we've been waiting and waiting because, of course, some deaths from infectious diseases, they happen quickly. The, The cancer's more of a slow burn. But Pat Price did say she thought we could eventually see a doubling in the cancer death rates. I believe it's on average, it's about 450 a day. It's now creeping up, coming up quite fast. And that's because so many people who didn't have cancer treatment, didn't even get sent for a scan or an appointment. Those poor people are now dying in quite considerable numbers because their cancers are untreatable because they are too advanced. I think Pat said to us, Liam, that even at In the early stages, two weeks, a month, that's a very precious time that you've got to get people in before it gets worse. The point I'm going to make is that having had these truly dreadful stories about the NHS, what the NHS always does, so they immediately start releasing good news NHS stories and then the broadcasters very innocently pick them up and run with them. So we had some big story about cancer's going to be all solved by some marvellous magic method in 10 years' time. So I think it's a very devious, self-protective organisation. It lives, it trades on its wonderful, caring reputation. I think it's actually incredibly cynical. It speaks for huge vested interests. It's whatever it is. It's at 1.2 million employees enjoying benefits that nobody outside the public sector, huge very good pensions. So I did write a piece about this and came up with my own 10-point plan for reform, which of course is very unlikely to see the light of day. But what was interesting, and if listeners do want to go and read that, we'll have the link to that in the show notes. And there are hundreds and hundreds of brilliant observations below, many of them from NHS consultants, workers, pointing out that the penalty for whistleblowers, they use millions of pounds of our money, the NHS, every year to silence and take to court people who've worked for the NHS, who've tried to tip the public off about what's going on. I mean, my rage at it, as you know, is out of control. But coming back to that CBI, the conference in Birmingham, Rishi Sunak stands up and talks about the NHS. And then 
goes off on some sort of strange thing about artificial intelligence being uh, the solution. What was he talking about, Liam? Drones? Or Who something? cares if you can't get a hip operation for four years? Because if you're a sheep farmer in Wales, we're going to deliver your blood pressure pills by drones. <laughs> you don't have to wait an extra day for a van to get to you. Absolutely insane. I'm reminded increasingly, talking of Tony Blair again, crikey, we're becoming like a tribute band for New yeah. Labour. Think back to the late 1990s. At least Tony Blair had the guts to try and take on the blob. Remember yeah. that speech in 1999? He talked about having the scars on his back from spending the previous two years since his 1997 landslide trying to reform the public sector. And of course it caused a row within the Labour Party and John Prescott had to be wheeled out to dismiss the Prime Minister's words as prattle. But of course he was completely right, Tony Blair, that there are vested interests in the public sector. Of course there are many, many, many brilliant people who do a great job and we're grateful to them. But I agree with you, there's this kind of managerial class that hides behind the hard work of a lot of the frontline staff and we need to reform this monolithic institution. There are much, much better ways to deliver free at the point of use healthcare, which doesn't leave anybody on the street if they haven't got a credit card ready. There is not a straight choice between the NHS monolith on the one hand and the American system on the other. There's a whole range of different systems across Western Europe, we can learn an awful lot from the continent, Alison, when it comes to healthcare. The French, the Dutch, the Germans, the Swedes. There are different systems, all of them free at the point of use, that don't rely on massive amounts of state money and a monolithic structure that's impossible to reform and silted up by huge vested interests. When is the political class going to grab this? The diagnostics are there for all to see. The objective scientific health outcomes on things like stroke, heart disease, oncology are bottom of the table. We need to stop saying this is a world-class system and it's the envy of the world. We sound ridiculous to the rest of the world when we say that. Briefly, Alison and I were citing their statistics contained in a report for a think tank called Civitas by Tim Knox, who is a previous guest on Planet normal. And we've both written about that report, haven't we? Yes. And all Tim does, I say all because it's a big body of work, he takes OECD healthcare outcomes, officially reported outcomes, and puts them in simple form in one document so we can compare across countries. And it's unequivocally true that NHS is not underfunded by international standards and our healthcare outcomes are particularly bad. Tim joined us last on Planet Normal on the 4th of May this year. Well worth listening to. There was one thing that we were quite good at, wasn't it? Was it amputating the right leg or something? There was one thing at the global table that the NHS was good at. So if you need your leg cutting off below the knee, this is the place to do it. What do you think about Starmer? He was singing from the Brexit hymn sheet, wasn't he, in his speech to the CBI, Labour businesses, businesses would have to provide better working conditions. The days when low pay and cheap labour are part of the British way on growth must and talking the talk on immigration, as you said at the top of the podcast, famously a great champion of freedom of movement. So I take everything he says with a pinch of salt, but he 
did seem to be burnishing Labour's economic credentials, presenting himself as a rather reasonable prime minister in waiting. What do you think? I mean, do you think he's making up the ground? The Labour Party at the very top and throughout its ranks can now sniff power. That's why, just as they did in the mid-90s under Blair and Brown, they're starting to get more disciplined and more serious. They're starting to get some good advisers in who are saying things that go down well across those swing voters in Middle England. Only this week, Keir Starmer was sending out tweets saying, I have many Tory friends. They will always be my friends. This is beyond politics. I've never been a tribal person, etc., etc. And of course, he's talking the talk on immigration and he's towing a very careful line when it comes to supporting or not supporting the RMT during these strikes. This is what Labour does when it senses it is close to high office. And from what we hear privately, Alison, from a lot of pretty senior Tories, it sounds to me as if quite a lot of them would be pretty pleased if Labour did win the next election. Save over 60% on a digital subscription with our Black Friday offer. Enjoy one whole year for just £69 and receive a stylish Chili's Travel Cup. Read our award-winning journalism while you savour your favourite hot drink, no matter where the day takes you. Search Telegraph Subscriptions. Now, there's been a huge response to Alison's interview last week with Dr. Clare, that highly experienced GP using a pseudonym for fear of reprisals from within the NHS. The concerns Clare expressed about NHS inefficiency and bottlenecks with the referrals process chimed very much with the experience of many Planet Normal listeners. The words of today's guest may also resonate with many of you, certainly younger members of our audience. Charlotte Gill is 33. She's a well-educated professional woman holding down a good and highly sought-after media job. For a long time now, Charlotte's been using Twitter and other forms of social media to raise concerns about the difficulties her generation faces finding decent rental accommodation, let alone buying their own home. I started by asking Charlotte what she thought about Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement. It was actually a lot worse than I thought it would be. I wasn't really expecting anything for young people in there. And, you know, I have nothing against pensioners, but the bit that really made me real with shock was when they talked about the triple lock and they talked about protecting that with inflation and all the Conservatives cheered. It was just so integral. It was so important to them in terms of their budget and there was absolutely nothing in there for young people. It sometimes strikes me, Charlotte, that... If the 60s were the decade where the young felt they were trying to attack the older generation, it's almost the other way around these days. Tell me what it's like to be in your early 30s, to be a professional person, you've got a degree, you've worked hard, you're very much at the top of your game, and yet you're struggling to even afford rent in London. And certainly buying a home, well, could you buy a home? The issue is, people my age, we all grew up on the premise that hard work pays off. It's a central premise of the West. And we're learning that actually it's just not turning out that way. You know, you're taught it at school. And I think what happened to me, and I don't know how common this is with other people my own age, is in my 20s, I realised that the housing crisis was very bad. I was flat sharing. I always had this expectation in my head, as I think a lot of people do, that when you're in your 30s, you own 
And I realized that just wasn't happening. And I've gone past that point and it still hasn't happened. And I think a lot of people in their 20s might still have the idealism. Yeah, essentially, there's just so much misery around millennials and people my age because they either are flat sharing. I don't know that many people that would want to do that in their 30s from older generations. I don't know anyone really that has bought a house without having a deposit from their parents or a lot of help. I get a lot of older generations. I've got nothing against them. I'm not looking for a generational war, but I find that they're saying things like, give up Netflix. I don't even have Netflix. Fewer avocado sandwiches. They Don't keep jetting off to Ibiza. Do you regularly jet off to Ibiza, Charlotte? I shouldn't admit this is a TV producer, but I read books at home, so I don't even have a TV license and a TV. I don't watch Netflix on my computer. In terms of holidays, I went on one, like one big holiday in the last couple of years, and that was actually funded from moving home from my parents in my 30s. And then just being able to save a bit that way and then going away with that cash, we're told that's Did very... you move back in with your parents for a little while to get yeah. some cash together to go on holiday? It's so infantile. Like, I love my parents. It's a very comfortable house, but people do not want to feel they need a safety net like that when it's they're It's not right for you. It's not right for them to be living with your dear parents as a woman in your early 30s, right? I don't know what the stats are at the moment, but I know it's a really high amount of people having to do this. Yeah, I feel people are talking, they're saying, give up Netflix. Back in my day, we had it hard too. And I get that interest rates were very high on mortgages at certain points in the past few decades. I think what's happened, though, is that older generations, you know, they started off finding it very difficult in some cases. Generally, on aggregate, that generation had more social mobility, so they were able to lift themselves out of it much more and I think that underlines a lot of the resentment about young people that complain because they're like well you can do it what we're actually seeing there's a lot of expectation that the more societies progress and technologically evolve social mobility goes in hand in hand with that and actually we're seeing that our society is progressing in lots of ways with advances but actually we're experiencing reverse social mobility because of housing inflation because it's become such an important asset in this country And I think that's something that people haven't got their heads around. I think that underlines a lot of the avocado bashing. When the next person avocado bashes you, Charlotte, you can tell them, because it's true, that even though interest rates were higher back in the late 80s and early 90s, they got up to 12, 15% routinely. The actual share of people's incomes, which is the important bit that they were spending on their mortgages and their rent then, were lower than now. It was about 31% then on average. It's now just gone up above 32%. So even at much, much lower rates of interest these days, obviously interest rates are going up, but they're much, much lower than they were. You guys, with all huge respect to you, your generation, you're spending a higher share of your post-tax income on rent and mortgage payments, if you're lucky enough to buy your own home, than people back in the late 80s and early 90s when interest rates were 12 15% even at interest rates of base rate 3% mortgage rates 5 6% now why because homes are just so much more expensive than they were as a multiple of incomes back then the average house was about four times the average income now the average house is eight or nine times the average income and for you guys interest rates could yet go up a lot more mm. so the amount of your income, the share of your income you're spending on rent or mortgage is even higher. So it's completely wrong for people to say it was harder in their day. It really wasn't. It was easier. 
Yeah. And I think one of the arguments, there's a multitude that I see over and over again. So there is a misunderstanding about the economic differences between generations. Also, one I hear a lot of is you should commute. You're expecting to live in London. That's unreasonable. But number one, so many jobs are in London. It's not as if people are trying to be obstinate and, yeah. and move here. And number two, commuting is not for a lot of people, not just young adults. It's really not ideal. I actually commuted earlier this year. I got a Section 21 notice. So I spent about three months looking for a new place. The hours were, I was waking up five, six. I mean, a lot of people do it. Getting home like 10, 11. So I wasn't seeing anyone. But not just that, the trains aren't very good. And they cost a bomb at the moment. Mm. That's going up. It was costing me £160 per week. And that was living with my parents. But once you tack on rental costs or housing costs, it's not that affordable. And I think people do say to Generation Rent, stop dreaming of London, you need to be realistic and move out. Do these people also know how we're going to move the economy elsewhere Mm. outside of London? Because if you look at the proportion of jobs here, it's just not a realistic option. Mm. To what extent do you think that the politics of this are shifting? Here you are, with all respect, you're a well-spoken, highly educated, highly qualified young woman. Presumably your parents, you've said they have a comfortable home. They're not badly off, and yet they can't afford to give you two, three hundred thousand pounds or whatever you need for like a really chunky deposit or even fifty thousand pounds. And without that deposit, you can't get on the housing ladder. To what extent do you think the politics of it are shifting? Frankly, Charlotte, even nice girls like you can't buy a home. That's a change, isn't it? The deposit you need at the moment to weigh against your salary, they've just got to ridiculously high How much cash would you need, lump sum, to get on the housing ladder in a reasonable place, one bedroom that was yours, that's within reasonable commuting distance of where you currently work in central London? I think you're looking at at least 100,000 to probably get a decent property. Politically, it's interesting. I actually saw an article the other day. It was 2015. And David Cameron did this article about how he's going to stop people having to use their parents to buy houses. Mm. Two, 2015, so I really don't feel very optimistic about Seven the political, years on. political landscape. They've tried various schemes. Share to buy. I mean, the problem with share to buy is you are still renting. There are so many like mini scandals related to the housing crisis. You've got the leaseholder campaign groups, you know, you've mm. got cladding campaigns. Michael Gove has he's created this fantastic new agenda to fix renting, and everyone was really happy with it. And but the problem is the supply is so it's the southeast. People will say there are enough houses around the country, but the problem is that demand is always focused in the southeast. Until you fix the balance then people are always going to have to put up with terrible conditions because it's a seller's market and mm. a landlord's market. Mm. And so we can keep bringing out legislation and trying to tinker at the edges, but until they really get stuck into it, nothing's going to change. How do you feel about this? I mean, you don't strike me as somebody who's used to failing. How does it make you feel that with your qualifications, your extremely impressive career that you're building for yourself, that you can't buy a pretty straightforward home. And I know your character, you're not looking for a really flash home. You're just looking for a decent place in an okay area that you can actually call your own, right? Yeah, it is frustrating. I mean, it's just inbuilt to the UK, but so many people will just 
feel really cheated by the system, this idea that hard work pays off and it actually doesn't. It pays landlords so much of your income going on rent. The meritocratic side of things is really hard because you can work really hard and do well in your career and then you've just got this stumbling block that will completely change you ideologically because you just cannot believe in the system anymore and it's the one thing that no matter someone tries really hard and does well at x and x and x that one thing will always be holding them back but yeah the other thing is that people are being treated so badly in the rental market going through such horrible experiences you know it wears people down and it makes them feel slightly belittled like section 21 notices for instance especially an eviction notice right yeah they went up hugely in the Mm. pandemic i got one in the pandemic prices fell and i felt i'd sort of lucked out because i got this discount on a really nice flats long story short had really poor sound insulation and the people above we kind of had a chilled relationship the woman below decided that I walked up the stairs too noisily, I put my washing machine on too noisily and I closed cupboard doors too noisily and I had a small gathering, it was around the time of the Omicron variant so I kept it quite tight. The next day she came round, she said that was unacceptable, she complained to the landlady, landlady says the next day you've got to go. The flat went up on the website on Monday, by Thursday it was gone to a new tenant and I had to move out very quickly. I'm being open about that experience because I know Mm. lots of people have Mm. similar experiences. And it all points to, as you say, a market where property owners, landlords have disproportionate power because there are so few homes to rent because we're not building enough homes. There is a major shortage of homes in the UK. We have built far too few homes over decades now, not just in London and the South East, but across the country. What do you say, Charlotte, if I said to you, that the lack of homes is now messing with our fertility as a country, with our demography. Back in the early 90s, the average age for a woman to have her first child was 28 years old. And back then, the share of women of 28 years old living in rented accommodation was 15%. The average age is now 29 years old, and the share of women living in rented accommodation at that age is 45%, three times more. So lots of Young women are choosing, for various reasons, not to have children. They're having to work really hard just to afford rent to carry on in their jobs. They may be living with a guy in shared accommodation. The two of them, between them, can't afford to move out and have a family. It's really hard, isn't it, to have a family in a shared home with some of your mates from university or other people that you work with. This, in my view, is now a major reason why fertility in this country is falling and falling quite sharply. Yeah. But, you know, you are a woman of that generation. Does that ring true with you? Yeah, 100%. And your friendship group? I think there are some really cliched narratives about why women aren't having babies. It's very trendy to say they're putting their careers first. They don't realise their biological clock, things like that. But I think the average reason is housing costs. How do you fit it all in? I'm very vocal about my unhappiness with the housing market. A lot of people don't want to be. There is a bit of a stigma to women admitting they would like a family, scaring off men, things like that. But behind the surface, there is a lot of fear out there. I think one of the big things that we're seeing as a response to the economy not helping women is the rise of egg freezing. Egg freezing actually has very low efficacy. The last stats on it showed that it resulted in 18% success rate for births. 
But what's happening is society is letting down millennial women in so many ways. Even I read today about hospital care for giving birth is appalling. Society has greatly let down women my age. And instead of trying to fix that, fertility companies and people sort of preying on women say, freeze your eggs. It's thousands of pounds to freeze your eggs, isn't it? Yeah, I even saw one recently. It's called Freeze and Share. You provide your eggs and half of them you donate And to me, this is exploiting. Some women might really like it, but there's a lot of fear because society is not creating the conditions to make family life easy. And I feel that these people are preying on it and shoving the problem onto the individual when it's society that's actually let them down. Finally, Charlotte, I know you follow politics very closely. What would you say to the Conservative Party when there are young people like you, if I may say so, I think, in general, you'd be minded to be a swing voter. Sometimes you might vote Tory, sometimes you might vote Labour. What's it going to do to their election prospects when people like you are not able to buy a home as you get older? Because surely the Conservatives are going to lose their natural base if we become a nation not of homeowners anymore. And if more and more of your generation never actually ever get on the housing ladder. I think the Conservatives see it too much around the wrong way. They think, we don't appeal to young people. And it's not even just young people. It's it's people 40s, 50s. They think we cannot get millennials and younger to vote for us, so let's give up on them. Whereas they don't see it as an opportunity. And also strategically, they don't realise millennials are starting to disperse around because they can't afford London. So they're dispersing all around the country. They're not voting Conservative. They're voting Labour or more left-leaning parties. So it's not going to work out anyway as a scheme. But saying that, I don't think Labour will do anything either because the voting incentive isn't there. So it's quite a depressing picture for young adults at the moment. I do fear what's ahead without sounding too dramatic. What will happen is there'll end up being huge protests or some sort of mass political movement if they don't do something because the major parties just, they're both presenting obstacles. Can't keep burying our head in the sand. And I'd like to see a lot of Conservatives talk about the Green Belt in Parliament and they kind of get pats on the back, metaphorically. I'd like to see a real stigma. I'm not even suggesting let's go crazy on the Green Belt. I think we should build up in the South East. I also think migration has to be matched to how many houses we have, which is not very fashionable for young adults to say. Charlotte Gill, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks for having on me. On Planet Normal. Great interview, Liam. I follow Charlotte on Twitter and have been an admirer of her. She's extremely articulate about the frustrations of her generation. I mean, she did take to sharing these pictures of some of the absurd flats in London, you know, where the the loo was in the kitchen, you know, absolutely tiny battery hen coops for our young people. And it's, you know, we can contrast that. I was just thinking as she was speaking when I was her age with my then partner, we'd bought a flat in quite reasonably central London for about 68 grand. You could afford it. Yeah. I mean, we didn't have to find a hundred thousand pounds deposit, which is basically pricing out anyone who hasn't got parents 
with very deep pockets. And I think what Charlotte is spelling out is this entrenching of generational unfairness. I was lucky I went to university on a full grant. I mean, came from a home where there weren't many means anyway, but nevertheless, I didn't have a student loan. And both of my kids are in their 20s. One is still a student. So with the autumn statement, we can all look and roll our eyes about Jeremy's crazy sort of tax increases. But many of my generation are having to bail out their 20 and 30-something kids because the rents are simply not affordable. So we are probably paying around £700 a month in rent for a student in a not particularly nice part of, of London. And I know from listeners and readers that many of us are in that situation. And this isn't what our kids want. They don't want to be coming home and living with their tedious parents who sit watching I'm a Celebrity on the sofa when they want to be out. So it's a huge problem. And I think that well done to Charlotte for articulating it, but also for throwing down the gauntlet to politicians. What the hell is the Conservative Party doing alienating clever people like Charlotte? I should say that I've got to know Charlotte. She works with me at GB News. It is a little bit in-house for journalists like us to interview people who we know anyway. But I do think Charlotte is a reason to make an exception to that rule. She is not a show-off. She is not a natural complainer. And I do think that came across. She's just a very articulate, as we heard, and determined campaigner in this area. She won't mind me saying, I do think she's somebody who would naturally be of the centre or the centre-right. But I think Charlotte and people like her across her generation are increasingly going to go elsewhere with their votes, throw the cards up in the air, let's cause chaos and see and see what happens. They'll be ideologically shifting towards more extreme measures that we know from history are counterproductive, you know, stringent rent controls and very, very onerous conditions on landlords, which means that people just won't rent their properties. What we need, and it always comes back to this, is we need to build more homes. And I don't think it's just about planning, though planning is an issue. It's also about our oligopolistic house building industry that builds only very slowly to keep prices high. They'll deny that. They always do. But I've proved it with the figures. If they think I'm wrong, they can see me in court. (laughs) (laughs) You've written uh, the great book on that. So from what we're hearing from Charlotte, A, I think if I was Charlotte's age now, I would seriously think about emigrating. I really would. And there's the other point, which again reflects the absolute short-sightedness of our political class. I've been working on a piece about this, Liam. If you have got young women in particular who see no hope of being able to start a family, you are in big trouble as a country. Are they just going to literally continue to usher in more and more immigrants to fill this gap when young British people don't see any possible way of starting a family. That's an absolutely ruinous policy. It's also a hugely unconservative policy. So shame on them, frankly. Now on to our listener emails. Your message is sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. 
please keep them coming. We absolutely love reading your thoughts. And we've had an avalanche of whatever the interstellar version of post is this week about the dreadful fallout from the autumn statement. Richard describes himself as a never again conservative voter. You're not alone, Richard. Alison Liam, I had to write as I'm fed up of hearing about triple lock must be given to pensioners of whom 30% are classed as millionaires, 80% own property and over 65s are the wealthiest demographic in the UK. I'm all for helping the less well-off pensioners, but I earn 70000 and I'm now taking loans out for the living costs. As two of my children started university, one on an NHS course, and they get the minimum student loan due to my income. This is coming back to what Charlotte said, Liam. Richard continues, I have to pay 600 per month each for their rent or they couldn't go to university. My son started higher education, so I now pay £100 a month for his bus. Energy bills now £500 a month, so overnight I've had a £25,000 pay cut. So not feeling the love that millionaire pensioners will get 10% inflation rise on pensions, plus fuel allowances and other things while we now seriously struggle. As a small medium business owner that received no help during lockdown, my employees were far better off than I was, I now plan to max out pensions when the corporation tax rises to 25% and finish working as soon as possible before they change the pension access rules. I'll then spend time in my home in Spain, for which I've worked very hard and taken many risks over the last two decades in business. I will never vote conservative again and appreciate the podcast while my family with three teenage kids went through the hell of dropping out of university in December 2020. A-levels and GCSEs disrupted during the many lockdowns and rules. Luckily, we had a bit of money in the bank. Otherwise, things would have been very different. And Pete also describes himself as lifelong conservative voter never again. Remember, says Pete, we are paying all these taxes to fund the lockdowns which the political class demanded and the ridiculously expensive furlough scheme. I'm voting Reform Party next time. This is from Pauline, dear Alison and Liam. What a wonderful stowaway you had joining you on your capsule of common sense. It was so good to hear not ordinary but extraordinary people talking. Dr Clare... As a GP in post-COVID Britain expressed clearly the excessive bureaucracy and the layers of management she faces on a daily basis, making her job of caring for her patients almost impossible. Her frustration was palpable. Dr. Clare said she should be seeing patients face to face. How wonderful. And that's how it should be. I thought the government had stipulated that should happen. However, this is the message on the phone at my doctor's surgery. Quotes, appointments continue to be triaged by phone. Patients will be asked to attend an appointment face-to-face if there is a clinical need. I would have thought, says Pauline, if you're ringing a doctor, there is a clinical need. The first telephone consultation available is a mere three-week wait. Then, if the doctor feels there is a clinical need, a face-to-face consultation will be offered. How quickly that appointment follows, I don't know. What a waste of time. More bureaucracy. Our politicians who postulate in Parliament as they feather their own nests have no idea what's going on in the NHS and I don't think they care. Their private cover will serve them well. They're so out of touch with ordinary people. It's mind-boggling. Thanks for your wonderful podcast, which I look forward to every week. I love the humour and banter. It keeps me chuckling away. 
Planet Normal also kept me going throughout COVID. It made me realise I wasn't going crazy, that there were rational, logical thinkers out there fighting for us. Thank you. From Pauline. That's lovely, Pauline. I love the way that listeners always attribute to us the fact that we've kept them sane when we, by contrast, Halligan, have gone completely around the bend. We have had a huge number of emails about the NHS, many very, very knowledgeable people trying to access it as patients, people working within it as nurses and consultants. And I hope we're going to be featuring some of those great messages over the next few weeks. This really jumped out at me, Liam. This is from Hannah, not her real name. I was really moved by your interview with the lovely GP, Dr. Clare. The pushing around of patients to hide the true waiting list numbers is horrible and real. Here is my experience of it. My husband and his family have an issue of structurally large tonsils, meaning they've all needed to have them removed as children as it affected their ability to breathe and swallow. My two children have the same problem. It took two and a half years from GP referral to surgery for my eldest and I promised myself I would not let it happen to my youngest. But I cannot get my youngest referred, I am told, despite his family's medical history, until he is experiencing the same problems. At the age of two last April, the nighttime apnea began. The boy can't sleep well, he gasps for breath and he is starting to struggle with his food. I went to the GP, referral to ENT, ear, nose and throat made. I wait. In September, my son suffers from a chest infection. His tonsils swell and he can't breathe or swallow. Rush to A&E, five-hour wait. See a lovely paediatrician. Yes, those tonsils need to go, he tells me. Now, we are supposedly on an ENT urgent waiting list. Earlier this month, I called the ENT department. Yes, they say, you are on an urgent waiting list. No, they can't tell me how long I will wait. But an appointment will come out for a telephone consultation with the ENT consultant. A telephone consultation? What will that do? Can't the consultant read what the GP and paediatrician have written about my son? Why waste his time getting the same story from me? Trust me, he won't get a look at a two-and-a-half-year-old's tonsils over video conferencing. I know what will happen, because it happened with my eldest. The consultant will ask me the same questions the paediatrician asked. I will then go on to another waiting list for a face-to-face appointment. Then I will go on to another waiting list for surgery, all for a relatively low-risk routine surgery that would improve my little boy's life immensely. It will take two and a half years till surgery. I can also pay to see the same consultant privately next week. The two-tier system they warn about exists already. I'm now asking family to help so my son can have the surgery he needs when he needs it. Thank you, Alison and Liam. You keep me sane in this insane world. Keep challenging the NHS and waste. Wow, that's a really moving email from Hannah, not her real name. Just to say, Liam, I'm getting some of those every day. Yeah. All right, so that gives you a snapshot. There are people, as Dr. Claire described, there is now a waiting list for the waiting list, okay? So they say it's 7.1 million people on the NHS waiting list. I would not be at all surprised if it was 10 million already. On a lighter note, Let's return to Bob, the Planet Normal Bard, who's a former mug winner. 
<laughs> Here he is again. He's struck again. I think he's outdone himself. <laughs> Dear Planet Normal, when I heard about the plan to decolonize maths, yep, it was in the news this week, <laughs> I initially dismissed this as the demented ramblings of a bunch of tedious Marxists. However, after inspecting the national curriculum in more detail, I was appalled to discover that maths is indeed riddled with oppression and hate. Naturally, I decided the best way to solve this problem would be to write another terrible poem. Thanks again for Planet Normal, says Bob, the podcast that has no equal. So firmly tongue in cheek. Here we go. By Bob, how to decolonize maths. Don't call pi irrational or say angles are obtuse. These terms are problematic, so we're cancelling their use. Product sounds too capitalist. Inequalities cause hate. All figures are significant, so don't discriminate. Fractions, they're divisive, and averages are mean. Don't use negative numbers. They're bad for self-esteem. The world is now non-binary, so base two should be dropped. And power leads to oppression, so exponents must be stopped. Good riddance, Isaac Newton. You've caused too much offence. Mathematics must be cleansed. Who cares if it makes sense? I think that's his best one yet. <laughs> Work of yeah? genius, Bob. Work of genius. <laughs> really witty and clever. And we can't give him the Planet Normal mug as email of the week because he's won about <laughs> ten times already. <laughs> He's probably got a market stall by now, yeah, hasn't he? He's vlogging them on eBay. <laughs> this is from Mike. Hi, you lovely two. I hate to be a bit of a conspiracy theorist, but is it possible they're deliberately manufacturing a gigantic financial crisis in order to put forward the proposition that we should rejoin the EU to solve it? Just saying. And Alison, could you please let us have the text of that fantastic blob, 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 blob letter? Remember that from last week. I'd like to print it, frame it, and put it on our kitchen wall. All the best. Good work, guys. Let's have a reprise, co-pilot, of the fantastic blob, just to remind everybody. Vote for whoever you like. You get blob. Would you like more blob with that blob? There's no such thing as the Conservative Party. There are just slightly different flavours of blob who follow the same catastrophic socialist policies with a few minor variations. Sunak was probably born blob. Johnson was not blob when he was elected, but was unfortunately swallowed whole by blob shortly afterwards. Trust was not blob, so had to be eliminated. Blob, 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 blob. Take your pick because nothing else will ever be on offer. You really did voice Bill and Ben the Flowerpot Men, didn't you, in an earlier part of your career, Alison? And on that bombshell. That's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week, it's Alison's turn. Well, I think we'll give it to Hannah, who's fighting for her little boy to get the surgery that he needs and deserves from a health service to which the British taxpayer gives £151 billion every year. So Hannah, not your real name, email us at planetnormal.telegraph.co.uk and put in the email subject heading mug winner with your postal address and we'll send that mug to you if you enjoy planet normal please do leave a rating and a review on apple Podcasts or spotify it really helps others to find us and it cheers halligan and i up no end in this miserable weather it certainly does keep those emails coming they're the lifeblood of this show as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet earth comes back into view thanks as ever to our producers isabel bouchard elliot lampitt and our editor, Zoe Hitch. 
Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.